Thank you, Encore, for that ministry and music. I would invite you all to turn open your Bibles at this time to uh, our passage for this evening, which is Esther chapter 5. We're going to start there and go into Esther chapter 7, actually. You'll have to forgive me, I'm losing my voice a little bit, so I didn't mean to. If you'd like me to share, I could. I could pass this up. You probably don't want that. Do that. Um, Esther chapter 5. And, and I'll have to ask your forgiveness for this. I normally don't take on such a big passage. Okay, Three chapters is a lot. Um, normally I like to break it down a little bit more than that. But I hope you'll see as we study it that there's a reason I considered all this together. Taking just chapter 5 by itself doesn't make a whole lot of sense in my estimation apart from what happens in chapter 6 and 7. Because uh, we're going to see that Esther is going to make her request before the king and she doesn't exactly do it in chapter 5. She delays a little bit and then delays again. And you don't get to it until chapter 7. And so I think it's important for us to see the entirety of those things together. So that's the reason. Hopefully we will make it clear as we go on. I wonder if you've seen the uh, Back to the Future. Has ever, anybody ever seen the Back to the Future movies? Just one of them or any of them? Raise your hand if you have. Okay. This is going back a few years now. All right. Uh, it stars Michael J. Fox. Uh, as Marty, Marty McFly is his character. And if you know anything about it, um, he time travels um, back into the past and messes some things up. And, uh, you know, end of the day, he has to make his parents fall in love so that he can be born. Otherwise, he's just going to be wiped out of existence. Okay. If you know anything about the, the, the first movie, at least. And this movie is based off of something that is commonly known as the butterfly effect. Okay? I don't know if you've ever heard that terminology before. Um, that is, if Marty changed something in his past, even something insignificant, it has great consequences on the future. Right? And, and the name butterfly effect comes from the, the notion that if a butterfly flaps its wings somewhere on one continent, uh, that turns into a wind and then gathers with other winds and eventually becomes a hurricane somewhere else. Okay? I'm not here to prove or disprove that, just saying that's what it's normally called. And so the notion is that even small changes, small events can have huge consequences somewhere else. What we have before us in Esther chapter 5 through 7, I like to call a divine butterfly effect. The difference, of course, being it's not just due to random chance, it's due to God's sovereignty, where we'll see a bunch of seemingly insignificant details come together and produce a dramatic result that we would not have been able to predict had we just been looking at them without that divine perspective. Okay, a lot of random things are going to take place and you might look at them if you didn't know the end of, of the book of es Esther and wonder uh, what's going on here. How does this even fit in with the story in the end? It makes sense in a way that God orchestrates with his divine plan. So before we can get into that, we have to catch up. I think it's been quite some time since we've been in Esther. So we want to review the story a little bit. Um, Esther was a young Jewish woman who was suddenly made queen of all Persia in a very short amount of time. Her cousin Mordecai served as her adoptive father and also served at the king's gate. The king at the time was Xerxes, you might recall. Uh, and while stationed at the gate, Mordecai became aware of a plot against his life, which he reported to Esther. She, in turn, reported the matter to the king, who investigated it and had these two traitors hung. So Mordecai's loyalty was recorded, but for some reason it was not rewarded. And Haman, a man previously unknown to us, suddenly and unexplainably rises to power in the Persian Empire and becomes second 
in power only to the king. When Mordecai refuses to bow to this man, Haman, and give him the respect that had been commanded, um, he explains that he is a Jew, and that is the reason why he refuses to bow. And these servants report Mordecai's actions to Haman, and Haman seeks revenge by not just killing him, but plotting to kill the entire Jewish nation. And somehow, through some conniving and um, manipulation of the king, he manages to get this plot authorized by the king. So that on a certain day that he chooses by lot, uh, utter just chance from his perspective, uh, on that day they're going to kill all the Jews. And this is sanctioned by the king. So Mordecai becomes aware of it, we said, and he pleads with Esther to intercede for her people by appealing to the king. He tells her rightly that that's the only way they're going to be saved. Esther initially refuses because doing so could mean her own death. We remember maybe from the last lesson that if he did not accept that, uh, extend that golden scepter her way, she could be killed on the spot just for coming into her, his presence uh, without being summoned. So she's scared of that. But after uh, Mordecai reasons with her a little bit longer, she accepts and she agrees um, to go before King Xerxes and plead for her people. Esther fasts. And she sends a message out to all of the Jews in Persia to fast for her as well. And so she summons up the strength to go before the king. That's where we left off. And if this were like a TV show, this would be a great cliffhanger, okay, to leave to the next season. Because it's like, okay, she's going forward. She doesn't know what's going to happen. And curtain closes. Okay, that's it. We'll have to wait until next time, right? All right, well, we have the benefit of the Bible, so you might know how this turns out. So I can't fool you. But we are getting to that point now where it comes to what happens. Okay? We now can see what's going to take place when she goes before the king. And we'll start in Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. We'll see what happens. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And it happened when king, the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. And then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it will be given to you. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. All right, let's stop and review. You got to imagine this must have been a tense moment for Esther. Okay, picking up where we left off before, she's putting her life into her own hands, and this is the moment where she steps forward into his throne room, and if he doesn't extend that scepter, she's dead. Okay, and you can imagine she would have done everything in her power, humanly speaking, to make this go well. It says that she put on her royal royal robes. Excuse me, tongue twister. Say that a few times, okay? She probably had to choose the, the right dress, the right shoes, probably thinking of everything she could to look her best, to come in in the best possible demeanor, probably as nervous as anything, but she enters. And um, in God's mercy, okay, not due to how she dressed, not due to the way in which she spoke, only due to God's mercy, he causes the king to be in a good mood. Xerxes extends this scepter to her and her life is spared. The king is in such a good mood that we read, he even assures her that virtually anything she asks will be given to her up to half his kingdom. Now, who could have predicted that? She was just hoping to have an audience with the king, just that he would hear her out. And 
for whatever reason, God decides to make him in a good mood and also to offer anything. He says it to her. Anything you want, up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. That's the mercy of God. But we see that Esther does not make her request, at least not yet. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet that she has already prepared for them later that day. So, okay, as we pause, and we're going to have to pause like this once more as the story goes on. The big question that was rolling around in my head, and it might be in yours as well, is why the delay? Especially when you have um, an offer from the king that says anything that uh, you want, even up to half the kingdom, it'll be granted to you. We don't really know. Unfortunately, I wish I could go into that question a little bit more. We don't have the answer. So it's pointless to speculate. All we can say is that she delays. And uh, it could have been because she was afraid. It could have been because she was waiting for the opportune moment. Maybe she already had the banquet ready and that was just her plan. So she had to roll with it. We don't know. I'll leave those three choices up to you. For now, we'll just say that she delays. And we'll see how God uses that, whether right or wrong. So... That's what happened. Let's see what took place at this banquet. Moving on to verses 5 through 8. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, and it shall be done. So Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I shall prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do what the king says. All right. So we'll pause there. Let's summarize what we read. In verse 4, Esther requests that the king and Haman attend a banquet she's prepared. And again, um, I imagine that she would have prepared it to the utmost, as best as she would have been able to humanly possible. Perhaps the king's favorite dishes, um, anything that she could have done to the best of her ability. It was also interesting to note, as we read that, that in verse 6, it mentions that she supplied wine to the king as well. Now, I'm not going to say that Esther is relying entirely on the wine. We know that she is trusting in God, and that is the thing that's driving her throughout this entire ordeal. We saw that at the end of the section we were with the last time we were together, that she begins this whole um, stepping forward by praying, by fasting, by asking other people to do that as well. However, I just find it interesting that wine is mentioned, given the role that wine is playing so far in the book of Esther. And we, we know if we go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, wine appear, appears in other contexts. King is somebody who doesn't seem to mind that. In fact, he has his share and more and gets you know to be willing to do whatever somebody is suggesting to him at the time. So, Again, not that Esther is trying to do everything to manipulate in human standards, but we can see all these details just kind of playing into the larger picture and to what's going on. Now, the meal's drawing to a close, and it says Xerxes is drinking his wine, and once more the king asks Esther what she wishes of him. Now, here we might think, okay, she didn't tell him what she wanted before, but maybe now. Now she's prepared this banquet. She's got everything the way she wants. Now she'll really ask what she wants to ask. But no, we don't see that. Once again, just like before, she she declines to make her petition. Even though Xerxes grants her anything she wants, he promises to, up to half the kingdom. Instead, she asks the king humbly 
if he would be willing to come one more day to one more banquet. And then she promises she will make her request. Once again, we're left wondering, why is she delaying? And once again, the text doesn't say. So I can't really tell you for sure. Again, the reason could either be that she's a bit frightened, or maybe she's still waiting for the opportune time. But no matter what the case, what I want you to see is that the reason she delays is not as important as the fact that she does delay. For it's during this delay, the interval between the first and second banquets, that God prepares the king to act as he desires. Let me say that again. It's between the first and second banquet that God is going to prepare the king in such a way to act in the way that God desires. God uses this time gap, we'll see. And uh, what happens during this time gap? Well, two other important events will take place before the last banquet. Let's read on to find out what they are. And keep in mind as we read that while these events may seem quite random, If you were just reading this story for the first time, they would seem very random. Um, We will find that God has preordained them to play a major role in affecting the king's response to Esther's request. So let's move on. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. Then Haman went out that day and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him, and how he had been promoted above all the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther, the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet he had prepared, she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see that Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, fifty cubits high made in the morning. Ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. And then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, and so he had the gallows made. I don't know... Esther's intentions in asking Haman to join the king in her two banquets. One would almost think that if you're going to accuse a man, you don't want him there. You would want to be able to speak freely to the king without him speaking back and offering his account of what really happened or maybe defending himself in front of the king. We don't know why she invited Haman as well as Xerxes, but what is evident is the effect attending the banquet, the first banquet has on him. He was already a proud and arrogant man. We know that. We can tell by his speech here. And now, being invited to Esther's banquet only further elevates this pride. For in his mind, he had not only won the heart and confidence of the king, but now in his mind, he's also won over the confidence of the queen. He's saying, hey, not only has the king promoted me, I'm higher than any of his other servants, but now look, his wife, his wife's invited me and she hasn't invited anybody else. I must be special in both their eyes. So this is important to him. And when Haman got home, um, he, re- he recounted all of his riches and his success and his power to all these uh, friends of his, to his wife. He's you know, on cloud nine. He's having a great time. He thinks life is perfect for him at this particular point. 
But in the midst of his success, there was one last place where Haman does not receive any respect. And that was with Mordecai. Mordecai still refused to bow to him. And even though Haman was second in the nation, just like every power-hungry politician, he wanted more. He could not be satisfied until everyone bowed to him. Okay, I, I point out politicians, but we're the same way. Okay, we can have everything in life, and yet we see that one thing we don't have, and we, what happens? We desire it, don't we? So we all can be um, drawn into this way of thinking. Haman has everything a man could possibly want. He has power, he has wealth, he has a wife, he has friends, he has food, he has everything. He's invited to this banquet. And the only thing he can focus his attention on is this one man, Mordecai, not bowing to him. You'd think that that wouldn't bother him. He's like, well, I have everything else. But no, it bothers him. And he becomes obsessed with it. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. Whether that's getting respect from somebody, whether that's some sort of material thing that we're trying to collect everything in our sight and there's that one thing that we don't have, we can very much become discontent with what we have. And we can see that this pride and this um, hunger for power is what leads to his further downfall. He tells this problem to his friends and they give him a simple solution. Do away with Mordecai. Let Haman build an impressive gallows that very night. And let him speak to the king first thing in the morning and have Mordecai hung on the gallows before the banquet. Then he could truly savor that moment of glory that he shared in the presence of the king and queen. So I said, don't delay. Don't wait for it. You want to have, you know, the utmost in power. You want to be satisfied. Just go and have that thing built. And by tomorrow, he'll be dead. And you'll have everything that you ever wanted. Now, this was appealing to Haman. He took the advice and immediately set out to have the gallows constructed so that they would be ready by morning. Now, pulling back for a second, this seems like quite a bad development for Esther and Mordecai, don't you think? Some might say that this situation is not leaning in their favor, to say the least. If we don't know how this story is going to turn out, this doesn't seem like a helpful side story at all. In fact, this seems like bad news. Um, while Esther is delaying, she keeps asking for another banquet, another banquet. As a reader, you're thinking, you've got to ask soon. You're running out of time. If you ask for another banquet, you might be dead. Okay? You just can't keep asking for another one, another one, another one. You've got you to do something. Okay? So the reader's mind, as you're, as you're reading the story, you're thinking, okay, we've got to do something. It's coming to a head. Somebody is going to meet their end soon. So let's move on, see what happens. Uh, who's going to get whom? Is it Haman or Esther? Let's go to chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, and the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered from the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, 
Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him let them bring a royal robe, which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to the one the king's most noble I'm sorry, to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array this man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him this shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. And Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh and his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. All right. If you ever come across somebody who tells you there's no humor in the Bible, point them to this chapter. Because this is hilarious, I think. Okay? I think this is absolutely funny when you read what exactly happens. Okay? And if you've ever... Anybody seen the VeggieTales version of this? Okay, I've got to admit. I've never really watched VeggieTales much until our kids started watching and everything. And then they watched the Esther one. It's just really funny because the character who's playing Haman saying, you know... Okay, well, King, if, if you want to honor him, tell, just have somebody proclaim, this is a stunning guy with shockingly good looks, you know, and look, just expecting it to be him. Okay, it's funny, the detail that Haman goes into about how this person should be honored, thinking it's him, only to turn around and the king says, that's great, do that for Mordecai, and you do that. You, you accompany him through the, through the streets, and I want you to be the one to, to honor him. That's just, that's just a funny irony to me, okay? And... And it's, it's amazing how all this fits together. So if we go back to verse 1, we see that the king is having a, a miserable night's sleep. And if it were the first time you were reading the story, you just might see that as random chance. Okay, why are we telling about how the king can't sleep? Who cares? Right? But it's going to matter. It's going to matter. Once we see the end of this account, we realize what God is doing. The king is unable to sleep. And finally, in frustration, he calls for his servants to read to him from the book of the Chronicles. And I read that and I think that would put me to sleep. Okay? Just go ahead and like read the minutes of some meeting or, you know, this is what happened in, in this period of time. Okay? He, the king knows how to put himself to sleep. Read, bring me something boring. Okay? And uh, just keep reading until I'm out. And so the, the servant does what he asks and he eventually comes upon this account of the two traitors who plotted to assassinate the king but were stopped by Mordecai. Okay, again, one might regard this as chance, but as we'll see, this is far too perfect to be chance. And not just this detail, but so many details that we're reading here. Okay, if you're talking about the chronicles of the kings of Persia, how big could that be? I mean, I'm, I'm picturing books that are like this large or scrolls that are quite hefty. Okay, he could be reading from any of them, the servant. But how amazing is it that he opens up 
to the passage that involves Mordecai. You can't say that's just mere chance when you start to see everything else work together. And so the king hears this story, and he straightens up in bed. He says, was there anything done to reward this man? And they say no. So he's shocked, and at that moment, Xerxes decides that this can't go on anymore. He needs to honor somebody, and then Haman walks in. Okay, and this is great. This is another part of just how all these details can't be, like, detail after detail. It cannot be explained away by chance. Okay, so Haman walks in. Haman's looking to murder this guy. And, again, if you watch the Veggie Tales, it's just really neat because he opens into his mouth and he's like, Haman, what can I do for you? Uh, I know, I wanted to ask you a question. Okay, and then he interrupts him and then uh, goes right to asking about how he's going to honor this guy. And it's just perfect, perfect timing. So the king... Um, notices that, that Haman arrives, Haman comes in, and Haman thinks that he's going to be able to present this, uh, you know, this plot before the king, and he's going to be okay with it. But before he can even open his mouth, the king starts saying, I need to honor somebody. How can I do that? And blinded by his own pride, he thinks of everything under the sun. He says, let me get the king's crown. Let me get his horse. Let me get his robe. Let me wear all those things. Give me a servant. And you can put him on my back and proclaim it through the streets saying, this man is the guy that the king has chosen to honor. King, do all those things because in his mind he's thinking it's him. And so what he doesn't realize is that's going to be part of his own undoing. Because as we've said, as soon as he's finished speaking, Xerxes says, um, go ahead and do that for Mordecai. And again, just adding to the humor, um, he has to be the one who proclaims before Mordecai in the streets, publicly, before everybody, that this is the man the king has chosen to honor, and it wasn't him. Now, he returns home that day, and it's easy to see that things have not gone well, based on what the text tells us. And uh, he was swelling with pride the day before. Now he comes home mourning and, and with his face covered, and, and now even his friends and his family see what's going to happen to him. You might even call this a prophecy of sorts of what's going to happen. They say, if Mordecai is a Jew and he started your own downfall, there's no way you're going to be able to escape this. And again, just another detail in chapter 6, at that moment, as they're still speaking to him, that's when the men come in to invite him to Esther's banquet. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, we go into chapter 7. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther, on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what's your request? Even half of the kingdom it shall be done. And then Queen Esther answered and said, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed to be killed and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not, have, would not be to commensurate with the annoyance of the king. But then King Xerxes said to Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. And the king rose in anger from drinking wine and went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. 
Now when the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in his house? Me in the house, excuse me. As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house is fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the anger of the king subsided. So that's how Haman's wicked plot was put to an end. Let's review once again where we're at. The king and Haman arrive at Esther's banquet and they begin with drinks. Once again, we see in verse one. And over this dinner, the subject of Esther's request is once again brought up to the king. And he seems eager to hear the request, which may be partly out of curiosity because he's had to wait so long and partly because he's aware something serious is troubling her. Any concern to the queen should be a concern to the king, one might say. But again, we can't just attribute this to the good nature of the king. God caused him to be in a good mood. And not just once, not just twice, but three times. And one might, one might argue that through Esther's delay, maybe she was making her chances worse, that while he was in a good mood the first time, who knows if he would have had a good day the second day or the third day. But here we see that he is in the right mood to ask, and he says it the same way, up to half the kingdom. Esther does not delay in giving her answer this time. She informs the king that her people are, are the, the Jews and they are going to be destroyed. And then the king is enraged. Who would do such a thing? With no hesitancy at all, she says, it's him. It's Haman, that vile and wicked Haman. And of course, the king is shocked and angered. So much in shock that you see he's unable to take it all at once. He goes outside for a moment. And then just another added bit of humor, I think, in this, that Haman starts falling all over Esther, begging for his life. That doesn't help him because then the king comes back in and he's like, are you going to come and even just try and assault my queen on top of things? It didn't help. It just made the king more angry. And then we see a further detail about how the gallows were built. And just at that moment, somebody mentions that to the king and he says, hang him on it. Hang him on it. And just like that, through these workings of, of all these intricate details, the people are saved. God's people are saved. Esther is saved. Mordecai is saved. That's amazing. Now, what are we going to learn from this? Okay, we covered a lot in this lesson. What application do we draw from it? Okay, I think there's one real big application here, and I don't have it broken down in a lot of different ways because it just can be summed up in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Who else would have been able to plan so many things coming together? And this is not a fairy tale. It's so easy to read this like it's some sort of, you know, children's storybook that, you know, all these things came together and it was just this perfect story. It's not. It happened this way. These were real historical events that turned out this way. And I tell you, there is no way that all of that could have come together on its own, on its own. You know, there's so many details that go on in our lives that we often miss. But I want you to know, okay, that we, just because we're blind to it, doesn't mean that it's not happening. God uses insignificant, seemingly insignificant events in our lives to bring about a larger purpose about where we're heading, where we are now. And, and I would just take, I would, this would be my challenge for you tonight, to just think about where you are today. Some of the important things that have happened in your life, maybe some of your successes. And I'd like you to really break down how that came to be. 
I think one big lesson we can learn from this is that we really, really should avoid taking credit for where we are today. Because if we didn't have this, okay, if we didn't have this all spelled out theologically for us, it would be all too easy for Esther to turn around and say, hey, that was, that was me. Look what, look what I caused to happen. And in some ways, I'm kind of disappointed to, with, with the Veggie Tales story. It does a pretty good job of getting a lot of the details right. But I think it comes a little bit short in the end in that it makes a giant application about how Esther was somebody who was an ordinary person and was willing to be used by God. That's true. There is a level in which that is true. She was an ordinary person. She did have to summon a lot of courage. She did have to go before the king, which would not have been an easy thing for you or I to do. And she had to trust in God. That is a valid application. However, there's something bigger than that. And that is we can't ascribe all that takes place to Esther. Think of all the details that had nothing to do with Esther's doing. The king reading from the book of of the Chronicles. The king not sleeping that night. Okay, Haman building a gallows. Uh, Haman walking in at just the right moment when he was looking to act on honoring somebody. Haman being the one to lead Mordecai around. Um, Haman being there for these three banquets and the king being um, willing to listen to Esther's request those three times. The timing of it all. You and I can fall into this dangerous trap where we look and say, my life is great. Like, I, I feel like a really blessed person. I've worked really hard to get to where I am. You know, I had to stay faithful to, to my beliefs and, and, uh, and work hard, and, and, it's, and it's really paid off. Again, there's a dual application here. Of course, that is part of the story, just as Esther had to have courage and do her part. But we need to never take the full credit for ourselves, not even the majority of the credit. My challenge to you tonight is to look back on all the successes that you've enjoyed through your life and to ask yourself, What parts really did I not have a a hand in? Where was it really out of my control? I might have, you know, worked hard at school maybe to graduate, get a degree, okay, if that's your case. But maybe some of that money for where you you went to school didn't come from you. Maybe it was a gift. Maybe um, even the fact that you were able to go to school, that was due to the fact that you were born into a certain family. Maybe you found a, a wonderful wife or a wonderful husband You say, I'm really glad I made the right choice there. And yes, we do have a responsibility as a Christian to make the right choice. But really, how much of that was up to you? How how is it that you came to meet that person? Did you really orchestrate all those events in your life to make it so? Not at all. Not at all. It's due to God's sovereignty. His sovereign working in our lives in minute details that we don't even consider most of the time. That has brought us to where we are today. God has used everything that has happened in our past to bring about his, his desired plan. And that's what's amazing to me when I just try and think about it. How God is sovereign over the entire universe and works through so many millions of details every day with billions of people throughout history to bring about one specific end. And that none of it goes awry, none of it goes away from what his desired plan is, but that he makes it happen. We have a sovereign God who has created us and loves us and is guiding us. Let's give him the proper credit for all that we experience and enjoy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the way in which you have blessed my life to get me where I am today. And God, I I know I fall into the same trap of looking back on 
everything that I enjoy, every success, and, and patting myself on the back for what I've done to earn it. Whereas we realize that when we have our lives examined under microscope, like we have Esther's here, when we look at it from a theological point of view, we realize that there are a ton of things that have happened to us, Lord, that we did not control or plan or craft. They were all put there by your divine plan. Lord, in the things that we do control, help us to be faithful. Help, help us to be people of faith and courage, just like Esther was. But God, also help us to recognize that without you, there is no success. All of our plans would fall to the ground if it weren't for your hand in them. So God, help us to continually praise you as the sovereign one who guides and directs and causes us to succeed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.